Hello and welcome to Science Off Camera. I'm Dr. Matthew Kozay-Dunn from Teledyne Photometrics, part of the Teledyne Imaging Group. In this podcast, I will be speaking with imaging specialists and industry leaders in scientific imaging from around the world about what they do, the advances they have made, and the cool imaging setups they have in their labs. Before we get started, if you're interested in learning more about scientific cameras and comparing technologies, we're currently holding live interactive remote learning sessions at our demo centers around the globe. Book a personalized session with one of our application specialists today on our website, photometrics.com. We also have an exciting new product, the Kinetics SCMOS, which delivers a frame rate and field of view unmatched by any other SCMOS camera. Book an online demonstration to see how it compares to current camera technologies. Welcome to the podcast. Could you introduce yourself and tell me about your path, your career path to your current position and what kind of research you're doing in your current position? Yeah, uh, my name is Dr. Izzy Jayasinghe. I'm a senior lecturer uh, in the University of Sheffield. These days I work as a microscopy method developer. I trained uh, in biomedical science in physiology. Uh, I did my PhD in cardiac physiology and biophysics um, in the University of Auckland in New Zealand. That sort of took me around the world a little bit. So I I worked as a postdoc in uh, Queensland in Australia, uh, looking at um, skeletal muscle. So as you might know, there are lots of parallels across different types of striated muscle. Again, I was using the imaging sort of approaches, protocols, and kind of philosophies that I had learned from studying cardiac muscle now to skeletal muscle. Um, and then I moved to Exeter uh, in the UK to do a postdoc in physics or sort of biomedical physics. And there was this change and shift um, there from being a more biology-focused researcher to slightly more technically-minded person. In 2015, I got a lectureship in the University of Leeds where I had the first opportunity to build a research group. More recently, what brings me to Sheffield is uh, a UKRI uh, Future Leader Fellowship to to, to try and refine some of the super-resolution techniques that we use what kind of super resolution is it? We started out, as with most most people in this domain, looking at techniques like STORM. And more recently, we sort of extended into sort of uh, techniques like DNA paint, which I think is a more versatile, capable technique than STORM. And more recently, we kind of essentially fell into uh, expansion microscopy, which is very left field way of doing super resolution. Uh, my colleagues call it uh, cheating because it's it's a it's a very chemical approach to getting sort of better resolution. Yeah, it's a, it's physical magnification. It's almost like the Occam's razor approach. Like, oh, I can't image my sample; it's too small. We'll just make your sample bigger. Bigger, yeah. Tried out expansion microscopy using one of the kits that Ed Boyden's lab initially produced. Heard about expansion microscopy on the grapevine, basically, you know, colleagues talking about it, and we thought we'd just give it a go. Mm. I guess the thing that I've observed is that 
for working with colleagues who are very biologically or chemically minded, it's a, it's a very accessible technique because what you have is not very specialist sort of intimidating types of instruments. What you have is a protocol. And I think there are there is a certain type of researcher, uh, and especially in the biological sciences, where that that is more accessible to them. You know, they feel like they can they can get into it if you if it's on a piece of paper, they just follow the instructions. If I had an SOP from back in the final year of my PhD, and I traveled back in time and gave it to myself in the first year, it would have happened in six months rather than three years. Exactly. I mean, I'm not saying that expansion microscopy is a replacement for some of the more established techniques like storm, palm and paint and sim and so on. I think there's a lot of power in being able to combine it with more optically or computationally driven techniques. And, and that has been done. So, you know, there's, there are techniques like XSIM or XSTED essentially built on the idea of putting an expanded hydrogel sample onto a microscope that's capable of doing okay. optical super resolution. Ah, so XSIM is expansion microscopy SIM. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I didn't know the acronym for this. Yeah. You know it's established once you get an acronym for it. You find that this domain of research is littered with acronyms. Everyone wants to create a new acronym, including ourselves. And, and we are very much guilty of this. But the idea is that if you can combine super resolution techniques, you're essentially multiplying that gain in super resolution with each other. So if you can expand a sample, say, by a factor of 10, put it on a SIM microscope that can improve the resolution by a factor of four, mm suddenly you have a 40-fold improvement in resolution compared to a standard diffraction-limited technique. And are you using these kind of massive gains in resolution to look at muscular samples? We are. Our kind of entry into this world was we were looking at the signaling proteins in the muscle, uh, similar to neurons, but muscles specifically rely on calcium signaling. We were interested in sort of the clusters of these ion channels, calcium channels, that are sort of organized in the muscle. Uh, our pet protein is called ranadine receptor. Mm. Uh, it's, a, it's a giant channel. It was by coincidence that we got interested in it because in the heart, the ranadine receptor is by far the, the principal driver of the calcium signals that happen from heartbeat to heartbeat. It's large, so it's about 30 nanometers in size. In the world of molecules and sort of super resolution, it's, it's a large structure. But again, it's, you know, mapping individual channels actually is harder than you think because when things are clustered together, it's very difficult to say. You can, it's relatively easy to say, uh, here's the boundary of a cluster. But it's harder to say, well, here's the position of each channel because it, it depends on things like the probe you're using, the resolution that you're working with, the reliability of the labeling and things like that. And this is an area where we felt that, you know, we can do with sort of multiplying resolution improvement. That's what we did. And are you able to infer more functional details from seeing more structure? Yeah, we can. First of all, I think there were some features in the structure itself that were 
quite fascinating to observe that we hadn't predicted. We found that the patterns were different. So what people thought was a crystalline array didn't seem to be crystalline in the working cell. And then that has some real implications. You know, um, it means that how individual channels can talk to each other or work in a cooperative way is going to be different. I think the value of that kind of image data was that we could then use that image data to build what we call geometrically realistic simulations of how a cluster of these calcium channels would co-activate and, and produce a calcium signal intrinsically. It's a long way from starting to simulate a working cell, but it's a nice demonstration of the power of using experimental data to uh, make some predictions of how they work. Yeah, it'll have fascinating implications uh, for all kinds of muscle. Yeah. How do you deal with the data aspect of it? Because I imagine once your samples get larger and your images get more high resolution, you start to run into, oh, you know, we're producing vast quantities of data now. It's a 3D problem as well, because uh, not only things become more spaced apart in space, the structures become more spaced apart in the Z dimension. So you do have to then spend more time imaging and acquiring those images. What you also get is a dimming or apparent dimming of the sample because, you know, you start with a sample that has very precise labeling patterns. The sample expands that pattern or a cluster of labels get stretched out in space. So it's a diluting effect. Mm. So you spend more time acquiring images in a really careful way, not to, you know, making sure you're not losing or damaging the sample or, you know, what we call photo bleach in the sample. And the the, the data volumes become huge um, in that sense. So you do have to then acquire more. But we we kind of take a statistical approach to this. So we, you know, very often in a field of view, uh, when you're imaging with a confocal or an airy scan system, you can image, if you have a sample that's expanded about 10 times, you can get an image that's about 10 micrometers uh, by 10 micrometers uh, by 10 in volume and that's for if you're looking at a muscle cell that's only a part of a cell so muscle cells are quite large there's a muscle you can see by eye by by the naked eye mm. about the same thickness as a hair okay grand and have you found that your experiences in this research in academia have changed over the last year or so due to the uh, the pandemic and the lockdown and the increase of virtual uh experiences Absolutely. So uh, I think think about this virtually every day, because I think in, in the way we worked before the pandemic, ex- especially experimental science and especially experimental science, the life sciences was a team activity. You, you work in a lab, you work in a group that meets once a week or twice. That experience is very much a, a human experience. You know, you have conversations in the lab or in the coffee rooms or in the corridors about how to do the experiments differently. That went away when we went into lockdowns and everything then had to be on a schedule. Casual conversations were not on your schedule. It would not happen. 
that was really detrimental, especially to the way we work, uh, because I think in my group, uh, in a similar to the, the groups that I worked in before founding my group, we work in a very informal way. You know, a lot of the, the good ideas come from casual conversations. We found that it kind of dried up. I was also in the process of moving between institutions. So I actually started uh, working in the University of Sheffield uh, in the middle of that first lockdown in May 2020. Basically started from a clean slate. Uh, I had no team members for a number of months. And I have to say, you know, it was hard because it, it definitely wasn't the way we were used to working in science. Yeah, it's it's very, very collaborative. And yeah, as you say, once you take that all away, it becomes a very different experience entirely. I know of people who have thrown themselves into work, researching things that are related to COVID, found ways to keep the labs open and, and keep working. And they have really thrived. And then there are also some individuals who are really naturally individual workers who prefer their lab to be quiet in order for them to do the experiments. But I think the vast majority of us are still social social creatures. So it's very difficult when that's been taken out. So what kind of hobbies or activities do you tend to do outside of your work? These have evolved quite a lot. So I um, have been a keen runner. Go through various life stresses, um, especially as you advance through an academic career. I found it quite difficult to maintain hobbies over longer periods of time as I became an independent researcher, especially pressure to um, secure funding and and publish. I guess these days um, um, I still do uh, running but i guess i i do it more in a in a not very competitive way we've done uh, a bit of latin dance sort of more brazilian pop types of dance so um not the classic latin dance like tango and salsa but there are sort of more pop styles like uh, there's one called zuclambada brazilian pop is the best way to describe it and things like west coast swing based in america on the west coast so learning different styles have been a a pastime but again these are not things that you can do during the pandemic in this sort of remote working style i have engaged a lot with advocacy uh, on equality diversity and inclusion especially around higher education i think the uk there's a lot of political tensions across the country but in higher education we've started to really uh, shine light on issues like, especially around science, things like how equal and fair are we in when it comes to allocating research funding. Looking at that, it's not really my academic area of, of expertise, but I think through my experiences as an academic and also through experiences of handling data, there's kind of a new emerging angle to it of using a data-driven approach to really studying what you know equality and diversity means, and that's been that's filled up a large chunk of my time over the past um, few years outside of research. So, what kind of things do or should people do for advocacy for diversity in things like higher education and academia? I think the first thing is awareness of where people get marginalized and sort of where 
potential for individuals to be disadvantaged. It's about really engaging with conversations. So I, I don't know how broad your audience is, but in the in the UK, we have various frameworks that look at equality, diversity, and inclusion. So the the most popular one is called Athena Swan. And Athena Swan has gone through many different iterations, revisions, and uh, refinement. They are a reasonably good platform. They're not perfect, um, but I think it's a it's an area of work where you can engage and see. Well, if you're an academic in higher education, frequently apply for research funding based on your demographics and identities, how likely are you to get funded? Mm. The data reveals that there are clear disparities based on gender and based on race. Uh, There are other identities that we think play a part, but the data is missing. Starting to look at that data is, I think, a really good place to engage with it. Uh, And it's not just the data, it's sort of understanding in a more qualitative sense or more experiential level, how are people disadvantaged and, and try and fix it. So one example that I can give is that the UK funding bodies have these deadlines uh, for each funding scheme. Mm. You know, many of my colleagues, you know, have recently gone through that deadline for January, you know, which is very early in January, which means that many of them have spent their Christmas writing their grant application Uh. when you start to do that different colleagues or different people have different levels of ability to to do that so if you're a parent you're less likely to do it because you have children who are you know off school if you're a woman you tend to have a the lion's share of the domestic responsibility you're less likely to be able to make that deadline. If you are a foreigner, you have, you know, for Christmas, you go home overseas. There's a travel element. So things like that, that we want people to think carefully about. So that that's the, the, the kind of advocacy. So it's basically talking, you know, talking out loud about things that we experience and observe. I think it's evolving. It's not necessarily for the better or for worse, but it is evolving. I think increasingly industry plays a part in scientific research. There are also sort of conversations around, you know, building new research institutions that are not built in the academic model. Because if you're based in a university, your style of research will be very different to if you're based in a company that has different priorities. In a university, you'd be trained towards becoming a teacher fundamentally. Uh, even if you're on a research fellowship, uh, what they say is that your fellowship is underwritten by a lectureship and therefore you need to be able to be a good lecturer. It's not for everyone's liking. So if you get rid of the compulsory teaching component, you can throw yourself into your research more or at least have the choice. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's about holding your priorities together with the university's priority or your employer's priorities. Mm. For a university, from year to year, the big stress is maintaining student intake and the income from from teaching. Even if they value your research, they um, want you to play a part in safeguarding the university's income. 
and I think from an organizational point of view, I can I can appreciate that. Sometimes there's a real mismatch of expectations. You know, the universities invest a lot into world-class researchers and less into world-class teachers. And when they try to mold researchers into teachers, there's a lot of tension. Similarly, when they start to expect people who are really good at teaching to start delivering on research, that is that is unrealistic too. So definitely. Yeah. It's a complicated world. It makes such a huge difference if you have a truly impassioned teacher, regardless of whether it's secondary, further, higher education. And the introduction of teaching only roles relatively recently does help with that, I think. But as you say, people are often forced to, oh, you know, you're going to be 70, 30 research teaching and people usually tip one way or the other. Yeah, and I think the bigger complaint is not not about how frequently these roles come up for these sort of teaching-focused opportunities, but also the way the university or the institution really supports them. Mm. So quite often teaching only or teaching focused academics are on precarious contracts they have less money to 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 travel for conferences and things like that less time to write grants or papers it's a different track and i feel that it's slightly inconsistent yeah uh, with the priorities less opportunity for progression as well from what i've noticed yeah, and I think one of the real shortfalls in, in the UK higher education uh, sector is that there's a culture, generally speaking, that if you hire someone, you know, if you hire someone in, in an industry to do a specific job, very few companies that I would I know would not give them the resources and the time to do that job. But it is, it is uniquely in higher education that you hire someone who's world-class in a very specific area of research and not give them the time that they need to, to develop it. Obviously, there's a whole spectrum of experiences. There are universities and institutions who do it really well, and there are some who don't. It'll be really interesting to see how academia in the UK changes based on the sudden loss of certain sources of funding through Brexit and the need to change the way that the university admissions works and the pandemic impact of more virtual learning and more ways of you know collaborating or securing funding so it's really interesting to see what's going to happen over the next few years. Yeah I, I think it will change and it is interesting to see how it will change. I would say I've also seen different models of university in the other countries that I've worked in. So in countries like New Zealand and Australia, some of the bigger universities, the classes are are on a different scale. You can get quite easily these mass classes that have upwards of, you know, a thousand students in first year. And, you know, they have a lot more international students who pay higher rates of fees. They have a very different academic culture. So... It's probably not fair to say that they are less competitive. I guess the pressure to perform is different. You know, I guess how academic contribution, whether it's on research or on teaching, is measured in a very different way. 
and I think the way we do things here in the UK is partly that way because we have so many universities. We have a big university for every big city. And, you know, big cities are very close together as well. You know, you can have big cities basically 10 miles apart. So that level of competition has has created a market that I think we are all playing by. Yeah, it'll be interesting, as you say, like how, how the landscape changes when the funding changes. Is there anything that you would like to talk about or discuss or air while you have this platform? These days I work... You know, sort of firmly in sort of method development in, in sort of microscopy. It has been a shift for me from being uh, a more fundamental biologist, and it has been quite a refreshing one, I have to say. There's a more diverse range of working styles in microscopy that I hadn't seen before. So there's more there's more value placed on things like open science. There are still groups that you know, go for the classic level of priority of publishing. So, you know, to try and publish everything in nature or science journals. But there's also a good community that uh, are not driven by purely metrics, you know, driven by the love of new technology. I, I work closely with a number of groups like that here. So uh, you probably are familiar with colleagues like Ashley Cabby and Tim Craggs. Yeah, we had uh, Ash on for a podcast interview very early on. I just had a meeting with Ash just um, about an hour ago. (laughs) It's a small world. It's been a really nice uh, and refreshing change for me. It's new because, you know, when you go from being a a biologist and suddenly talking about materials and different camera technologies, different types of optics, it's a big shift, but I feel like it's been a very rewarding one so far. I think this, you know, optical optical work in some ways um, are very good for, um, you know, improving the throughput. Yeah, I think once, the, once you quantify things and re- release it as a paper, it's, it's never quite clear just how much work has gone into it, you know you spend hours and you generate a really nice sort of table in Excel. It's like, this is years of my life in this table. That's that's correct. And also depending on where in your training you are, it can, you know, obviously, especially if you're going through a PhD, the early days, the progress might seem quite slow, mm-hmm. but I think it is really a period where you're learning and establishing your skills. It's, it's also important when you're working in this kind of novel experiments and exploratory type of techniques that you have a lot of patience, both as a supervisor and as a, as a researcher, because it's quite easy to beat yourself up with it uh, if things are not quite going your way. Yeah, the, the safety net is gone. There's no, uh, you know, this experiment has shown me this data, which wasn't what I was expecting. Is this... Yeah normal no one knows you're the expert at this now yeah and my phd supervisor called it escape velocity where pretty much nothing happens and then suddenly for year two and three you just exponentially get more done yeah exactly and that's it's not just that that sort of narrative but sometimes experiments don't work when you put that against things like the the pressure to publish 
are the pressure for a PhD student to pr produce something substantial for a thesis that becomes really difficult. So, you know, if the experiments are not working, then there's a lot of pressure for the student to really perfect everything else in their thesis. Fortunately, I think these days, PhDs don't hinge on producing something that is unique and novel. It's, uh, I think the general criteria, especially in the UK, is that the, the research work is publishable or of publication quality. But, you know, I think that's the written rule. I think different examiners can interpret it differently. Uh, and that is still a challenge. Yeah, as long as a hypothesis is answered somewhere along the way. Exactly, yeah. But it is quite a difficult thing where you might get examiners who have done their PhDs in a very different generation and era. But nowadays, you know, PhDs are awarded for a very different volume of work students using very different technologies so sometimes it's quite a challenge for examiners and and supervisors to really park their previous prejudices aside and really be fair i remember feeling a distinct feeling of horror when i looked at my phd supervisor's thesis and seeing that the graphs were hand drawn yeah i can't even imagine hand drawing all the graphs yeah. i made that yeah. would have taken forever i'm not a very neat person when it comes no. to handwriting either Things like typesetting, typing things on a typewriter or a word processor. Um, yeah, very different, different world. Thanks again to my guest. If you like this podcast, please follow Photometrics on social media for more episodes. And check out photometrics.com for the latest in scientific camera technology for life sciences, such as the Kinetics SCMOS camera. We also host episodes that focus more on physical science applications, such as near-infrared, X-ray imaging and spectroscopy, partnering with Teledyne Prints and Instruments. Follow them on social media to see when the next episode is released. See you next time and stay safe.